Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. The vast majority of bacteria are our friends. We literally couldn't live without them. Food fermentation activist Sandor Katz teaches people how to enlist beneficial bacteria in preserving our food and our health through fermentation. We talk about the rocky human history with bacteria, how they transform themselves, our bodies, and our food, what fermented foods can and can't do for our health, the myth of self-sufficiency, and more. Sandor Katz is the award-winning author of two great books, Wild Fermentation and The Art of Fermentation. Sandor and I spoke while he was puttering around in his kitchen in rural Tennessee. You can find links to Sandor's books on our website, www.meetyourmyth.com. Now here's our conversation. I just have to top off my cup of coffee here. Okay. Okay. Well, hello. Hello. Well, hello. I'm with you. Okay. I figure in some way we're talking about fermentation because Yes, we that's are. all anybody ever wants to talk to me about. But, um, <laughs> are there other things you would like to talk? No, about? no, that's fine. I'm very happy to talk about fermentation. <laughs> it's just it's just become a little sort of you know an inside joke. Like, what did you talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would actually like to talk about not only fermentation, but how that's kind of a tool for revisiting our relationship with bacteria. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, it, you know, this is an important recognition that, you know, science has come to and that, you know, in our popular imagination, um, you, you know, it's, 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 it's slowly diffusing, um, you know, into the, but, you know, I mean, all of us who grew up in the United States or the 20th century grew up in the midst of what I describe as the war on bacteria, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we've really been indoctrinated all of our lives into this idea that, you know, bacteria are the enemy. Um, you know, bacteria need to be avoided, and when they're encountered, bacteria need to be destroyed by any means necessary. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, science has come to a more nuanced view of this. I mean, I, w- I would say that this view, you know, the war on bacteria idea really grows out of, you know, the emergence of microbiology and, and um, you know, the earliest triumphs of microbiology involved identifying pathogenic bacteria where, that were vectors of specific diseases. And, um, you know, and obviously that, that, you know, enabled huge advances in, in medicine. Um, you know, but in our popular imagination, that became the whole story of bacteria is that bacteria are these things that can make you sick. And, you know, what, what we now understand is that, you know, all life has evolved from bacteria and no other form of life has ever lived without bacteria. Um, and so, you know, sort of as, you know, as bacteria merged into more complex types of cells and multicellular life forms, you know, the bacteria from whence they came were always there 
you know, on them and around them. And as, you know, we and other complex multicellular organisms evolved, you know, these bacteria that are, that are part of us, these bacteria that we are host to, um, enabled much of our uh, functionality. So, you know, we human beings could not possibly survive without bacteria that are part of us. You know, they're not just, you know, the, the trillion bacterial cells that each of us is host to are, are not, you know, they're not our enemies and they're not even freeloaders. You know, they actually <laughs> give us much of our functionality. So, you know, our ability to effectively digest food and assimilate nutrients from our food, mm-hmm. um, you know, is primarily the work of bacteria. What we call our immune system, you know, what protects us from, you know, bacteria and viruses and various kinds of allergens, um, you know, our bacteria is the immune is our immune system, which is primarily the work of bacteria in our intestines. Um, you know, and we're beginning to learn that almost every other aspect of our, um, you know, physiology and functionality relate to bacteria. You know, we're, we're, you know, beginning to understand that our brain chemistry is regulated by bacteria in our intestines, you know, various aspects of, you know, our liver function, our circulatory function are regulated by bacteria in our intestines in ways that we don't completely understand. But, you know, we absolutely cannot regard bacteria as our enemies and we have to you know sort of reorient our worldview to recognize that bacteria you know is really the matrix of all life um and our ancestors the ancestors of all life and yeah so do you think this idea of bacteria being bad did that come out of pathology and the search for the causes of illness was was that the first time that bacteria were actually identified as such well no 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 absolutely not absolutely not well i mean you know for you, you have the, you know sort of the first the first references, you know, would be von Leeuwenhoek, who, uh, you know, first put together a microscope mm-hmm. and observed what he called um, animalcules. <laughs> um, but then there was a long gap, and I, you know, I, I can't tell you precisely when when that was. But Louis Pasteur, um, in the 1850s, was hired by an alcohol manufacturer. Like he was a chemistry professor, and the father of one of his students. Um, was a uh, an alcohol manufacturer, and um, you know, I mean, the the fermentation of alcohol, um, you know, has historically been um, yeah, inconsistent. You know, some I mean, some batches are better than others, mm-hmm. and you know, during the Industrial Revolution, as um, you know, the brewing equipment was was getting larger, and the size of each batch was getting larger, so the stakes for the success of each batch was, was getting larger. Louis Pasteur was hired by this alcohol manufacturer who is, you know, trying to figure out how to have greater consistency in, in his process and investigating the alcohol fermentation process. Louis Pasteur identified an isolated yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, really Louis Pasteur, who is credited as, um, uh, you know, the, the, the first microbiologist um, um, with definitively defining fermentation as a biological process with beginning to, you know, with identifying 
yeast and then bacteria and beginning to distinguish between different types of uh, microorganisms. Um, but Louis Pasteur's earliest investigations were done, you know, not to, you know, in the context of curing disease, but in the context of, um, you know, of, of fermentation and, and making alcohol, um, you know, but as, you know, as his investigations, you know, facilitated the investigation of different bacteria. And it wasn't long before bacteria were identified, um, you know, as the source of um, tuberculosis and some other diseases. So, you know, e even though the initial investigations had been spurred by a desire to better um, um, understand fermentation processes, uh, you know, very quickly, you know, bacteria became equated with disease and danger, um, and in the popular imagination, you know that that that's what um, you know bacteria became associated with. And meanwhile, so people have been fermenting foods and beverages for God knows how long, millennia. I mean, for you know many millennia, and um, you know we don't know the origins of any uh, uh, fermentation processes, and it's a very interesting question um, because fermentation practices are so ancient. The archaeological record, you know, shows pottery shards with re with residue of alcohol dating back nearly ten thousand years, mm -hmm. and that really only tells us about the history of pottery because presumably earlier vessels were gourds or, you know, skins or, or bladders or other membranes from animals. That or decomposed, yeah. All biodegradable materials. So, um, you know, and, and, and really the, you know, fermentation occurs spontaneously without human intervention. So anyone who's ever, you know, picked a bunch of berries or any kind of fruit really has observed that sometimes the fruit is already fermenting when you pick it. And there's lots of interesting documentation of, you know, different kinds of um, um, animals being drawn to the, the smell of fermenting fruit and gorging themselves on it. And, you know, and then, and then sometimes becoming, you know, disoriented uh, <laughs> in, in different ways. Um, um, so we don't really know about the origins of fermentation. I mean, clearly fermentation predates, uh, uh, you know, the evolution of, of, of humans. Um, and, um, you know, if we look at the historical record, the earliest surviving documents in lots of different writing traditions make reference to ferments that were already important foods in those parts of the world. Like what? Well, like the Sumerian tablets, um, you know, makes reference to beer and bread. Uh-huh. And it turns out that those ancient, you know, Sumerian methods used bread for making beer and used beer for making bread. So, you know, clearly these two, um, you know, important fermented foods, um, uh, you know, have a, have a long uh, intertwined history. Do you think there was any kind of mythological explanation or cultural explanation about why this happened? Well, yeah, sure. But I don't think that there was one. You know, what we have to understand is that, you know, sort of you know, cultures, you know, evolved in different ways in different places. And so, sure, I mean, there's lots of gods of fermentation. I mean, um, uh, you know, there's a... The Sumerian god of, of fermentation is, was a character named Ninkasi. And, um, you know, there's a Lithuanian god of pickles, Rogusis. I mean, you know, there, there are, you know, those are just two that I happen to know off the top of my head. But no, I mean, everywhere in the world, I mean, you know, especially alcohol was regarded as 
you know, as, as a sacrament, as a, as a sacred substance. And there was a huge, and, 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 and just the, the, the process of making it, of going from, you know, honey water to mead or, you know, grape juice or any kind of fruit juice to, to wine, you know, there, there's kind of a magic to that, especially right. when you don't specifically know, you know, about the sort of, you know, scientific biological explanation of what's happening. So if you're just seeing, you know, these bubbles coming and this, these amazing transformations that, you know, that the product of which, you know, alters people's consciousness and makes them feel like they're closer to God, you know, I mean, this, this process had a lot of mysticism, has a lot of mysticism around it. And, um, you know, I, I mean, in indigenous cultures, like all around the world, people have had elaborate ritual and ceremony around not only the products of fermentation, but the process itself. So I have your book, Art of Fermentation, that I've had for years. Uh, no, I have Wild Fermentation. So what, wild, wild Fermentation came out originally in 2003. Right. Just a couple of months ago, a revised edition um, uh, was published. Um, and then I have a, like a much bigger, more thorough book that came out in 2012 that's called The Art of Fermentation. They're both oriented towards like, you know, DIY, you know, how to how to ferment lots of different things for yourself uh, in your home kitchen. And the subtitle of The Art of Fermentation is Essential Concepts and Processes from Around the World. From your experience, do you think a fear of bacteria or fear of these processes is particularly American or do are other cultures much more... Uh, comfortable with it? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, perhaps the war on bacteria was more intense in the United States mm -hmm. than in many other places. But I think that, you know, the, the general idea that bacteria can be dangerous, um, you know, has permeated, you know, far, far beyond the United States. And you know, I, I would just say the most consistent question that I have received, you know, at my workshops and, and, and talks is how can I be sure that I have good bacteria growing in my jar of fermenting cabbage and not, you know, some kind of bad bacteria that might make somebody sick? So, I, I mean, really, um, you know, going back earlier than Louis Pasteur, um, there, there has been a bit of a sort of, you know, panic about the dangers of food preservation. And I would say mm -hmm. that this stems from canning. And, you know, the possibility in, you know, canning, especially non-acid vegetables um, of botulism. And, you know, really like the only reason we know the word botulism is because of canning. I mean, botulism. Has, so, so just to give give you and your listeners like a little bit of um, a little bit of history on canning. You know, we think of canning as an old time method of food preservation because maybe maybe we observed it. You know, because a grandparent or great grandparent was doing it. But um, you know, canning is a two hundred year old technology. There was a patent issued in France in eighteen twelve to uh, uh, Nicolas Apert, and in France they still still call canning apertization because they remember his name. Um, so this. This is not something that has always been with humanity. The idea of sterilizing food in a jar is basically a 200-year-old um, um, idea. Uh, and the problem is that, that the bacteria that produces the botulism toxin, 
Clostridium botulinum, which is an extremely common soil bacteria. I mean, probably none of us has ever eaten, you know, food grown in the soil that didn't have cells of Clostridium botulinum, but it can only produce this dangerous toxin in a totally anaerobic environment. And in the world in which we live, there are not many totally anaerobic environments. But when you sterilize food in a jar, you're creating a vacuum, a perfect vacuum where there is no oxygen. And because oh. Clostridium botulinum can survive boiling temperatures, you can kill all the other bacteria, um, leave Clostridium botulinum with no competitors in its ideal um, um, environment. So, um, you know, in the context of canning, before people understood that non-acid foods need to be pressure cooked, which raises the temperature and kills off Clostridium botulinum, you know, there, there were some, um, you know, sort of famous, notorious cases of, you know, entire families dying from eating a jar of, you know, preserved string beans or something. So, yeah. you know, in the popular imagination, I would say, um, you know, just food preservation became equated with danger. And so, you know, today, you know, you know, faced with a jar of fermenting cabbage, people are like, how do I know that that's not going to have botulism that's going to kill somebody? And the reason is that, A, there is, you haven't done anything to remove the dissolved oxygen in the brine. So, you know, it's just by definition, botulism can't happen there. Um, and the case history, I mean, according to the USDA, there has never been a single case of uh, food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables that they've been able to document, not only in the United States, but anywhere where they share information. So, wow. you know, the thing is that this, this process is safe. In general, fermentation is a strategy for safety. Uh, you know, we don't have to deny the existence in the universe of bacteria that can sometimes make people sick, um, you know, to sort of understand that, well, okay, let's say you have cells of Clostridium botulinum on the cabbage, you're turning into sauerkraut. It has no, it does not have the environmental conditions that it needs. And, you know, this is the key to fermentation is fermentation is all about manipulating environmental conditions in ways that encourage the growth of certain kinds of organisms and simultaneously discourage the growth of other kinds of organisms. Um, but yes, I mean, there's a lot of fear. Um, you know, certainly I've seen it most in the U.S., but I have seen, you know, the same fears, um, you know, sort of come up when I have taught in other places. Um, so they certainly are not, you know, unique to um, uh, people in the U.S. The first thing I ever made from wild fermentation was the Ethiopian honey wine. Mm, okay, me. And... <laughs> Which is, which is delicious and very easy. And I'm somebody who grew up with sauerkraut, but I remember making this Ethiopian honey wine and when it came time to drink it, I'm embarrassed to admit this, I actually invited over a friend who's an EMT <laughs> so that if anything happened, because I just, I didn't know what you just said about botulism and I had read a story here or there about some family getting wiped out and I thought, well, I, I guess I right. need to have a professional. Well, there. and this, this is uh, the thing is that, you know, just because most people's experience has become so far removed from, you know, any aspect of um, uh, food preservation, you know, we hear these big, scary, uh, you know, ideas like, oh, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes in, you know, um, in, in canning people get botulism 
socialism. So, you know, so maybe my meat or maybe my sauerkraut. But when you're fermenting, when you're fermenting raw plant material, there, there's no danger, which, which doesn't mean nothing can go wrong. I mean, you know, definitely if you, you know, sort of fail to secure the top of your sauerkraut and flies land on it and lay their eggs, you could certainly have maggots crawling out. You know, it's possibility you can get mold growing on the surface that you would need to remove. But like all the problems that can happen are visible. What people are terrified of, you know, with bacteria is invisible killers. And, you know, in the realm of fermenting, you know, raw plant material, whether, so whether it's like, you know, making a, a, a country wine or, you know, making sauerkraut or, or pickles, there, there just is no danger. If, you know, if, if someone gets sick from these things, it'll, it would really be an unprecedented event. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's just, it's extremely, extremely safe and no reason to, um, I don't know, be concerned. I mean, I understand people's anxiety about it because, you know, you've never seen, you've never seen this. How can you be sure? And that's, you know, and that, that, that's what's kept me so busy these, these, you know, this, <laughs> these past years is, you know, just trying to, you know, demystify this process. I mean, you know, the thing is that, you know, for, so you're right. You're, I mean, people eat and drink products of fermentation every day. Like, you know, like people eating the standard American diet, you know, sort of buying all their food at the supermarket, eating processed food. They're still eating products of fermentation because coffee is fermented, bread is fermented, cheese is fermented, cured meats are fermented. Um, you know, condiments, if they're not fermented themselves, like soy sauce and, and um, fish sauce, then they rely on vinegar, which is a product of, of, of fermentation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so like all of these foods that are just integral to, you know, the recipes in our recipe books and our, and our daily habits, um, you know, are products of fermentation. One, you know, 1960s scholar of fermentation, like looking around the world, looking at how people eat, came to the conclusion that one third of all food that people put into their mouths, our mouths, um, are transformed by fermentation before before we eat it. So so fermentation is extremely widespread. And I would say if we were having this conversation a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, um, you know, almost everybody would be witnessing some aspect of fermentation, a wine-making tradition in their family, an annual sauerkraut-making tradition, um, you know, uh, um, um, you know, injera sourdough pancakes or some other kind of, you know, sourdough, um, you know, pancake or bread practice. Um, uh, you know, but because food production has been so, um, you know, removed from daily yes. lives, um, you, you know, it's just, it's become mysterious. What used, I mean, what used to be maybe mystical because people didn't exactly understand how it happened, um, but it was familiar because everybody was witnessing it has become something that's scary because it's mostly happening in centralized production. I mean, it's still, I mean, you know, we're still eating tons of fermented stuff, but most of it is fermented, you know, in faraway places where we're not seeing it. And so, you know, so it becomes this idea like, well, you know, you must need a microscope. You must need a thorough knowledge of microorganisms. You must need laboratory conditions. And so people... People project all of these ideas of what you need to produce food. And, you know, I mean... I mean, I love fermentation. I'm very devoted to fermentation. But, you know, my larger agenda is that, you know, I think that we need to become more connected to our food and producing food. And that means, you know, sort of, uh, you know, gardens and getting to know local farmers and visiting the farms and having a sense of seasonality and what grows when and, um, you know, 
how you preserve the fleeting abundances of foods and all the other kinds of transformative processes that we use to turn the raw products of agriculture you know, into all of the delicious things that we enjoy eating. Yeah, and, and fermentation or any kind of preservation gives you options that you don't otherwise have. I'm thinking of my green tomatoes. Um, I have a lot of green tomatoes, and I've been doing all kinds of stuff with them because it's, it's cold here now, and they're not going to ripen. And so I have a big crock of green tomatoes and garlic and dill uh, fermenting. Instead of wasting them, I'll be able to eat them throughout the winter. Now, you describe the transformative power of bacteria. Let's talk about some of the things that bacteria can do. They have amazing capabilities to shape shift, as you've described. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. Okay. I mean, first, let me let me just preface that, like, you know, in relation to, to the food, I mean, the bacteria is what is, you know, let's say, you know, making, pickling your tomatoes, making them acidic to enable them to, you know, preserve for a few months in, into the winter. So, I mean, that's a huge um, um, a, a transformation right there. But, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a larger sense, yeah, let me talk about bacteria because, um, I mean, I have no background in biology or microbiology except for my fascination with fermentation. And as a result of that, I have been reading a lot about microbiology and it's, it's fascinating. And, um, you know, the most salient fact about bacteria, um, is that, so, you know, we each have this unique DNA code. Um, you know, every human being does every animal, every bird, every insect, um, even every plant, like all multicellular organisms are composed of cells that are described as eukaryotic cells. And that means mm-hmm. that the genetic information is contained in a nucleus. And in eukaryotic cells, um, the genetic information is um, fixed for the life of the cell and the life of the larger organism that it is part of. But bacteria are not constrained in that way. In in bacterial cells, prokaryotic cells, um, Mm -hmm. the the genetic information is free-floating in the cell. And, um, you know, bacteria have all these mechanisms by which, you know, bacteria can dock together and exchange genetic information. Um, You know, bacteria can take in genetic information from the environment. Uh, Bacteria can release genetic information that's no longer relevant. So let's say it has a gene that enables it to, um, you know, digest a certain protein that is, you know, no longer present in the environment and then it just becomes excess baggage. The cell can release that genetic information. So, so, so bacteria Mm -hmm. are continually changing their genetics and many, many microbiologists really have come to the conclusion that it's inappropriate to use the concept of species in describing bacteria because any kind of bacteria could potentially become any other kind of bacteria. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, so bacteria are totally shapeshifters. And I think that this is a, a, a much of what gives them their, you know, their extraordinary powers, uh, you know, especially of like adaptability and resilience, um, is they can literally adapt to their environment. 
and adapt right. to be able to, um, uh, you know, tolerate different kinds of, um, you know, chemical compounds in the environment, adapt to be able to, you know, break down, digest different kinds of, 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 of nutrients. Um, so bacteria are continually shifting in response to environmental stimuli. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we don't really understand their exact mechanisms in our body. I mean, even the idea of probiotics, I mean, there is no consensus on, you know, what the mechanism of probiotic therapy is. It's clear that there's a, an elaborate interaction between the bacteria that we eat and the bacteria in residence in our intestines. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the original model of, of probiotics that you, you know, you eat the yogurt with all the good bacteria and they take over your intestine is, is definitely um, way oversimplified because, you know, your, yeah. your intestine with a trillion bacteria is a highly competitive environment for, you know, a, a bacteria that you're eating. So, you know, they're not just moving, moving over and making room for the new guys that you eat to, to take over, but there is some sort of an interaction that includes a genetic interaction. Um, mm. so, you, you know, I would say that the emerging model of, you know, probiotics is that we are enriching the genetic environment in our intestines, which gives the bacteria that are in residence there, you know, more tools to work with. So say you had a bacterium in your system that was kind of neutral, it could bump up against something, a bacterium that is harmful or it could bump into something, a bacterium that is actually beneficial and take some of that DNA. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. You know, um, Trad Cotter, the mycologist and mushroom dude. Great guy. I love isn't him. he great? Yep. <laughs> he likes, he was telling me how he likes to set up these, he calls them gladiator matches in his Petri dishes uh. <laughs> uh, between fungi and bacteria and see, you know, how the, the fungus can exude something that might curb the bacterium or vice versa. And uh, looking at crisis situations, for example, like in Haiti, these are things that happen very quickly. And so it could be very useful for these evolving bacteria in situations where you've got cholera, you've got all kinds of bad stuff happening, where you could treat individual pathogens on a very short notice. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I think that this is a very kind of, you know, exciting new frontier of, of medicine, absolutely, sort of, you know, using this genetic power of, of bacteria um, in therapeutic ways. So you've said that there's a level of mysticism and alchemy to fermentation. What, where do you see the mystic part? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the main thing is that we're working with these life forces that are invisible to us. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, I would say that that is the major source of, of mysticism. Like you, you know, we can't see the bacteria that, that we're working with. We just have to sort of, you know, set up the conditions that we understand to be, you know, the ones in which they will flourish, um, you know, and then we wait. And, um, you know, at least in anything liquid that you're fermenting, you start to see bubbles eventually. Right. And yeah. so, you know, this is the affirmation that like, you know, yes, this life force that I'm trying to cultivate in here is manifesting. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And um, when you hear farts from your kitchen, from your crocs, <laughs> right, right, exactly. You see that re- re- the release of carbon dioxide and really bubbles are what it's all about. Like the word fermentation, even you know, comes from um, Latin fervere, which means to boil. Ah, uh, so it's like a biological boiling almost uh, that's transforming something. Yeah, you know, you're not you're not using heat, but you're sort of you know getting it to boil. So you didn't originally intend to uh, get into the food business or the fermentation business. I mean, my, 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 my work with fermentation was, you know, born out of, you know, my love of tinkering in the garden and tinkering in the kitchen. I've never been like a professional chef or, 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 or anything like that. I'm not a commercial sauerkraut maker or or brewer or, or anything. Um, You're definitely a DIY guy. I'm a DIY guy, right. And you're teaching other people to be DIY people. And and you do these workshops all over the world teaching people how to preserve their own stuff. What desires are they coming to you with? Why are they attending your workshops? Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because people come with a lot of, you know, coming from a lot of different places. So, you know, I'll always get people, you know, who are interested in the potential health benefits of it. You know, people who, you know, have digestive problems, Mm -hmm. uh, people who have various kinds of immune system problems. Um, I meet a lot of like parents of uh, uh, kids with um, autism. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I meet a lot of different people who are getting interested in it for, um, you know, perceived health benefits. And so that that's kind of one angle. You know, then I get all these chefs and, you know, just other people who just love food and flavor and, you know, sort of their interest in fermentation has to do with the, you know, sort of compelling flavors that um, uh, um, are, are produced by fermentation. And indeed, if you walk into a gourmet food store anywhere and like look around at the, you know, kinds of foods that we get excited about and categorize as gourmet foods, they're almost all products of fermentation. You know, then I get in, then I get a lot of interest from people who are interested in sustainable agriculture. And I mean, mm-hmm. no, they're it's not that they're not interested in flavor, and it's not that they're not interested in health benefits. But they're mostly, you know, looking at their you know row of cabbage in their garden and thinking, God, I need to figure out you know effective ways of preserving this. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're coming to to to, to learn primarily about. Um, you know, practical methods for for preservation. So, I mean, people just come at it from all kinds of different um, um, angles. I had a, I had an amazing uh, uh, student this summer, a young woman who came to a, a longer workshop that I did. Uh, actually, was that the one at a, Sterling? Yeah, a two week long workshop at, at Sterling mm-hmm. College, and she was a young woman who was part of the Mohawk tribe, and she had got very passionately interested in. Um, you know, reviving Mohawk food traditions and trying to sort of, you know, help improve, you know, health among her people um, by helping to, you know, restore uh, uh, elements of the traditional diet. And, you know, she has not been able to learn, you know, any specific ways, uh, uh, you know, that her people historically used fermentation and was coming just to learn generally about fermentation, um, you know, to try to, you know, imagine 
uh, uh, ways that her people might have incorporated fermentation into the into their diet. I mean, mm. I, I certainly could not universally say, like you know, that every in every culinary tradition in the world, um, people have incorporated fermentation. But I have not found any counterexamples. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, well preserved traditions that have that do not incorporate any kind of fermentation. So, I mean, you know, certainly in the Native American context where you know there's just been so much like displacement and decimation of culture. Right, I mean, right. it's very, I mean, it's, it's a very common story that I have heard over and over again in many different contexts of people losing, uh, uh their fermentation traditions because they haven't been used. But I, I really have not come across any examples of, um, culinary traditions that have never incorporated any kind of fermentation. And I really think, you know, the, the, the reason fermentation is universal is the simple fact that we now understand that all of the foods, um, that we eat, all of the plants and animal products that make up our food are, um, populated by microorganisms. And so, you know, either the microorganisms are going to rot the food in some way, or you're going to sort of figure out some, you know, environmental condition that, that where, where you sort of shift the microbial development and, um, you know, enable something that's going to give you some benefit that's going to either preserve the food, make it more easily digestible, make it more delicious. And that's really the story of fermentation. It's not anybody knowing about microorganisms. It's mm-hmm. people observing that under different environmental conditions, food develops differently. And and fermentation makes a lot of those foods more digestible, right? Absolutely. It, it, yeah, yeah. it kind of pre-digests for you in a way. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that that's exactly, you know, the, the, the main way that fermentation transforms foods nutritionally is through, through pre-digestion. The idea that nutrients are broken down into simpler, more elemental forms before you eat it. You know, I wonder if... The, the kind of Western approach to the fear of ferment or the fear of bacteria is also part of this idea that we we stand alone, you know, that we're these mm-hmm. um, singular organisms above all the rest and we stand alone and we're doing it all on our own, which mm-hmm. is a particularly American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how you see car ads and it's always someone driving their new car on an open road and no, you're going to be stuck in traffic. (laughs) It's like this, this image, like I am, you know, here I am on my open road, just me and my Ford F-150. No, you're going to be in traffic like everybody else. And, and we're, we're dependent on other creatures. We interact with other creatures. And in, in the case of bacteria, in some ways we're kind of ruled by them. Yeah. If we if we let things go out of balance. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, absolutely. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that it's just really important to, uh, you know, like, yeah, recognize this idea of like of, of, of balance that we, you know, we we exist with bacteria. And generally, there is just sort of like a there, there's there's a balance, and it, you know it's really the problems with bacteria, whether it's in a pre-digestion context of in a ferment, um, you know, or whether it's in our bodies. You know, it's really you know when 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 the populations get out of balance that the problems begin. But but yeah, I mean we we live in this bacterial world, and and we have to you know accept that uh, that that reality, and and you know some sometimes people do this in in extremely um, uh, uh, you know, bacteria phobic ways where they 
approach bacteria uh, like w- with um, war metaphors and and trying to to kill them all, but we can never we can never kill kill all the bacteria. I mean, we couldn't possibly survive if we were to succeed at such a project. You know, for years we've been marketing people antibacterial soaps. Oh God! Um, you know, and, 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 and really just just given you know our, the popular imagination about bacteria. Um, I mean, there's nothing there's nothing more alluring than you could, that you could write on a container of soap than promising people that it kills 99.9 percent of bacteria, and right. this has been used as a successful marketing ploy for um, you know the last couple of decades, really. Um, you know, and now the FDA has just outlawed. I mean, you know, for years, the, you know, the the major organized group against uh, the consumer use of antibacterial soaps with triclosan, right. the American Medical Association. Um, you know, and now finally the, the, the federal government paid attention and is, is outlawing triclosan. But, you know, when I talk to people about it, when I talk to audiences about it and I say, okay, how many people here have, have believed that, um, you know, fewer people are getting sick because everyone's washing their hands with these chemical lace soaps. Like people just laugh and giggle nervously. Like nobody, nobody really believes that fewer or certainly nobody observes that fewer people are getting sick because everyone's washing their hands with these antibacterial products. And, you know, the, the reality it is that, you know, we coexist perfectly well with 99.9% of the bacteria on and in our bodies. And what protects us from the 0.1% of bacteria that can make us sick are the 99.9% of bacteria. And so if we're continually, you know, using products that, um, uh, that kill 99.9% of bacteria, we're definitely not making ourselves less vulnerable to bacterial disease. And all we are doing is making ourselves more vulnerable to it. It's almost counterintuitive to the modern mind, at least to the technological mind, that the more you encounter bacteria and let them do their thing in a balanced way, the healthier you can be. Well, and there's all this like really interesting research, um, you know, looking at the rise of asthma among children and Mm -hmm. the recognition that there's almost no asthma in children who grow up in farm communities. And the conclusion has been that like, we basically have to teach our immune systems how to function. And, and the way that happens is through their exposure to a wide range of bacteria. And when we you know, are protecting children from bacteria and they're not getting that exposure, then, you know, that then their, their immune systems start, you know, sort of working against, you know, things that people normally can tolerate perfectly well. Uh, so, so, you know, people benefit from bacteria, bacterial exposure, from diverse bacterial exposure. I was talking, uh, with a woman the other day, uh, about bacteria and we both grew up eating dirt um because i grew up on a farm and she grew up in a small town and and uh when when you're working with animals and stuff and you're a little kid i mean it's inevitable and uh it it can do you a world of good that's for sure and maybe this is like the um maybe there is a you know, biological purpose, uh, you know, to the, you know, sort of compulsion that small children have to stick everything in their mouths. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Fermented foods 
have played an important part in your own health, haven't they? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've had I've had my own uh, uh, health struggles. I mean, I've been living for 25 years with HIV, and mm-hmm. you know, I want to be really, really clear and say, like, you know, fermented foods are not a cure for HIV. Um, you know, I, I do not recognize fermented foods as a cure for cancer, although there mm-hmm. certainly are anti-carcinogenic compounds in um, uh, fermented vegetables. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I, I don't think that we can like, you know, look look to specific foods, um, you know, to, to, to cure diseases. And, uh, right. you know, I think, unfortunately, there's been, um, you know, a, a fair amount of unsubstantiated hype where, where, where I have seen that, you know, most explicitly is in some of the marketing of kombucha. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I've seen like kombucha websites that, you know, claim that kombucha will prevent your hair from going gray. Um, and I can, I can say for sure that like kombucha, I mean, I've been drinking kombucha since long before my hair started going gray. And, um, you know, I feel pretty confident that kombucha does not consistently prevent people's hair from going gray. Um, you know, and I, cause you have quite a bit of, gray I, hair. I have quite a shock of gray hair, you know, but I think that, you know, I mean, clearly, you know, these, these probiotic foods, uh, you know, ingesting bacteria can um, be very significant, you know, because they can help us to digest food more effectively and assimilate nutrients. Um, You know, they can improve our overall immune function. And this is very, Mm -hmm. very well documented. Um, And there's a lot of new information suggesting they can even improve mental health. And so, you know, I mean, as long as we're not expecting, you know, that eating a specific food is going to cure a specific disease, um, you know, I think that, you know, foods that can improve digestion, improve immune function, can improve mental health. I mean, that's something that all of us could benefit from. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're sort of, you know, facing the, you know, biggest health crisis of your life um, and fighting for your life or, you know, whether you've been sort of, you know, living with a chronic disease that's become very normalized over the course of decades or, you know, whether you have some listeners who are walking around who feel like, you know, they're the most strapping specimens, um, you know, in their neighborhoods. I mean, it doesn't matter what the status of your health is. Um, um, You know, foods that can improve digestion, improve nutrient assimilation, improve immune function, uh, improve mental health, that's a huge benefit for anybody. Uh, right. So I encourage people to think about them, uh, you know, the, the, the benefits of live culture foods, you know, in, the, in those more general terms rather than more specific terms. So, yeah, I mean, I've been living with HIV for 25 years. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, when I moved from New York City to the community that I lived in for many years in rural Tennessee and got involved in gardening and um, you know, I was just, I was hoping that, you know, clean living and, um, you know, drinking good, fresh spring water, eating fresh organic vegetables, um, spending a lot of time active outside was going to keep me healthy. Um, and I was eating fermented foods and, and lots of other things. And I had a health crisis in 1999 and 2000 and ended up on HIV meds. So, you know, this, the story I wanted to be able to tell everybody that fermented foods, you know, kept me healthy is not really the way it went. Like I had a health crisis and I've been on meds ever since 1999. Um, you know, but it must be working well for you because you're traveling all the time. Yeah, no, I think that I think that they, they're working very well for me. Um, but also I could say that. Like, you know, many of the people who I've met who are on drugs like I'm on have digestive problems all the time that I've that I've just never encountered. And so, you know, I think like, you know, even, you know, if you have cancer and even if you're pursuing chemotherapy or radiation, it doesn't mean that, you know, pursuing, you know, sort of dietary means can't also be significant. 
Um, So, you know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, the cure or the treatment to to a disease. It can be just part of supporting your general health, you know, while you are, you know, sort of dealing with whatever the, the, the disease process that you might be dealing with. Right. Plus, it's delicious. Plus, it's delicious, right. <laughs> you grew up a couple blocks from Zabar's, it's right? It's true. I grew up on the Upper West Side, about two blocks from Zabar's. I knew all of the Zabar's family. Tell, tell, tell people, if they don't know what Zabar's is, tell them about Zabar's. Well, Zabar's is just this um, amazing, you know, old uh, Jewish deli on the Upper West Side of Manhattan that has, you know, smoked fish and... Uh, I used to love their white fish salad. Oh, my God. Amazing. Oh, I love the, the white fish salad, too. Um, um, you know, and the amazing cheese section, coffee, chocolates. Um, but, you know, really, what I, I mean, I, I, do, I can visualize, like, the layout of Zabar's. And as I walk through, you know, I realize everything that they have is fermented. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and this, and this is true of gourmet food stores everywhere. But I mean, you know, the food from Zabar's that really sparked my interest in, in fermentation was pickles, uh-huh. sour pickles. Uh, what yeah. side of New York might think of as kosher dills. In New York, we just call those sour pickles. And um, there's no vinegar in a sour pickle. So, you know, I noticed, I noticed really young, you know, before I investigated how to make them, I mean, I just noticed that, you know, the pickles from Zabar's that I loved, um, had a totally different flavor than like, you know, the, the pickles that I could buy in the supermarket, um, which are made with vinegar. So, you know, sometimes that confuses people like what is a pickle anyway? And I would say that, you know, a, a pickle is anything preserved in an acidic medium. Um, and you know, you can pickle a cucumber in a number of ways. And the way that has become most common is you basically pour hot vinegar over the cucumbers and heat process it. And what's so wonderful about that is it can sit on the shelf in a store or in your kitchen for literally years. And then when you're ready to open it, you can open it. So it's very convenient. Um, the, the contrasting style cucumbers with, lactic acid rather than acetic acid and the lactic acid is derived from a fermentation so you put the cucumbers with garlic and dill um and generally some grape leaves which help keep them crunchy for the tannins yep um and you you just put that all in a in 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 a vessel cover it with a brine a salt water solution um you know add other seasonings as you like and um and then through a fermentation of carbohydrates in the cucumbers you generate lactic acid and you don't need a starter the starters on all the cucumbers uh, on all vegetables i mean all plants have lactic acid bacteria so when you're fermenting Mm. vegetables there's never a need to introduce a starter the starter is always already there as long as you're working with raw vegetables. Um, so I, you know, I observed as a kid, this flavor difference that lactic acid tastes different than acetic acid. I mean, I didn't even know those, those phrases. I just knew like the Zabar's pickles taste a lot better than the supermarket pickles. Right. You Um, just know what you like. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it it is also possible to heat, to, you know, preserve, um, fermented pickles, uh, uh, with, with heat processing, but generally the tradition is to eat them raw. And there's a real revival in it. So, you know, you know, and sauerkraut is also a pickle. Kimchi is also a pickle. They're also vegetables preserved in an acidic medium. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you want to if you want to buy commercially produced, you know, sauerkraut or, or, or pickles, you have to be a very savvy consumer. 
Um, you know, you have to really read labels and know what you're looking for. Um, anything that's sitting on a shelf in a sealed in a jar, not refrigerated, is never going to be alive. That would just be impossible. Because it produces carbon dioxide. So if it's going to be alive, it needs to be in a refrigerator. Um, or it needs to be sold out of an open vessel, like the old world way of pickles. In, in Zabar's, when I was a little kid, was out of a barrel. And then at the point of sale, it didn't matter that it was producing a little bit of carbon dioxide. That was just off-gassing in the store. But, um, um, you know, it was never sealed in anything until the point of sale. And then we'd bring them home and put them in the refrigerator. Um, uh, That's what we used to do grocery shopping. There were several pickle barrels and we would say, mom, can we go get the pickles? And then my little brother who was still in the cart, you know, as a little kid, how most little kids go crazy with desire in the cereal section. He was going through the deli, like leaning out the cart going, mom, herring, herring. Uh, so, <laughs> and it is, it's a totally different flavor. And I, I much prefer it too. What's your, uh, what would you say if you could eat any ferment right now and you probably could because you're probably surrounded by them? Is there something that's your favorite? My favorite ferment? Oh, that's such a hard question. Ugh. I mean, I am very, very devoted to sauerkraut and, and fermenting vegetables. And like, I mean, I just love it as a food that I eat with. I mean, it's never the main thing or the only thing that I eat, but like it goes with everything. And I eat it, right. I eat it with almost everything. You know, I make some eggs and I have it with sauerkraut. I make a sandwich and I put sauerkraut on it. You know, whatever I make for dinner, I serve sauerkraut as a, as a side dish or pickles or um, um, kimchi. And, you know, for me, a lot of the pleasure of it is like mixing it up and having having, you know, di different kinds of uh, vegetable ferments to, to mix in with it. But, you know, veg fermented vegetables are something I'm very devoted to and I really love. But do I love them more than cheese? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, sure, if I was if the only if I if I could only eat one food, I know that the sauerkraut would make me feel a lot better than the cheese would. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the cheese goes really well with the sauerkraut. And then do I like sauerkraut or cheese more than I like beer? I mean, I love beer. Um, <laughs> And I also, and I'm, a, I'm an addict to coffee and um, I love chocolate. I mean, there's so many amazingly delicious products of fermentation. I'm just glad I don't have to choose really. Oh, I, you know, earlier you were talking about the, about like the, the, the myth of self-sufficiency. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I, that I was, that I encounter quite a bit, you know, especially with people who are all enthusiastic to like learn how to do their own fermentation is they see it as a means, uh, you know, toward total household self-sufficiency, that they're going to be able to like grow all of their own food and then turn it into all of the wonderful, um, um, things that people love to eat. And, um, you know, I mean, I just feel like that is such a myth, the idea that yes. any individual person or any individual household, you know, could or that it would be desirable for them to produce all of the food that they need and to be entirely self-sufficient. I mean, I think that, you know, regional food self-sufficiency is a really great thing for us to strive towards. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, certainly the idea of like, uh, you know, of, 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 of some level of specialization and, um, division of labor. So like, you know, not everybody has to become a master brewer, but, you know, even a relatively small county, you know, could support a few master brewers 
who make that their primary focus. And, you know, not everybody has to be um, an accomplished baker. But, you know, like a relatively small, you know, county of people could support a few really good bakers. And I, I, I would say that, you know, the fermentation arts are probably one of the, you know, realms of human endeavor where specialization emerged earliest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but the logical conclusion of that doesn't have to be, okay, more and more specialization, bigger and bigger, you know, factories for producing, you know, beer and cheese and bread. Um, um, you know, I, I mean, I think it, it's really desirable for us to have these skills among us so that, you know, the next generation of kids doesn't grow up thinking like, oh, this is the totally mysterious thing. Like, oh, this is something that requires some technical prowess. Oh, this is something that like, you know, that that woman on that road that we sometimes go and visit and buy her, her beer um, um, is doing so that people can get a glimpse of it. So it's not this just kind of total abstraction that happens in a factory in a faraway place, but something that like a, an accomplished craft person who I can watch and maybe get to know and, you know, maybe get to help um, um, is doing. Well, and I think that whole myth of self-sufficiency is truly a myth because I, I live on a farm where um, we are trying to restore my partner's family's farm um, in kind of permaculture ways. And it's really hard to do. <laughs> Growing your own food and setting things up and getting your soil uh, in position to support you and all that, that is really hard to do. And not everyone is going to be able to do it. I don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but we're not trying to do it just self-sufficient. I mean, we know our neighbors and some of them have wonderful farms. And and when I think of, um, I have given people sauerkraut that I've made as gifts you know, and that's another way that you can connect with people through whatever ferments you make, yeah. you know, because well, not everybody's going to have the time or the ability to do it. Well, and, 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 you know, the gift economy and the informal barter economy are, are, are huge. And especially right. in relation to food production, like, okay, you know, I've got these pear trees and there's just like, there's more pears on those trees than I could ever, ever do anything with. So I've been all about sharing pears, inviting mm-hmm. people to, you know, to, to pick pears, bring some home, um, you know, ju- juice some, you know, bake some desserts, make some pear sauce, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you're going to do. But I mean, I would say that just in general, food production lends itself to that. You know, I mean, you never know in a given year, like what's going to really be great. Like, you know, some years those, those there have been no pears or just a few but for some reason this year there's just more than I could ever use so I've been trying to invite people over and get them get them to harvest them mm-hmm. um, but you know like the same is true of lots of lots of different kinds of things like you know oh maybe it, this year wasn't so good for, for my peppers but like some of my friends had you know bumper crops of peppers I don't know what was different in their gardens than in my garden but you know I've been getting peppers so I mean I would say that um, you know sort of beyond whatever statistics of of, of, you know, sort of what gets, you know, sort of sold, you know, from farms, there's, there's this huge, especially among people just doing, you know, sort of small household level, you know, sort of gardening and, and, and orcharding. And there, there's just a huge amount of, um, you know, gift, gift exchange, um, uh, informal barter, whatever you want, or, you know, or, 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 or sales. I mean, you know, right. just selling, you know, tiny amounts to their neighbors. So before we go, I, 
Um, can you tell me about the foundation for fermentation fervor? Sure. I mean, this is this is what you know what I have called basically my school where I where where I teach fermentation, and um, I mean I I mean I just just basically twice a year I've been hosting these multi day workshops, and then you know then the rest of the year I do a lot of traveling. I just I love um, you know multi day. Uh, fermentation immersion experiences where, you know, we just make a bunch of different things over the course of five or six days. We eat all of our food together. You know, people call it fermentation camp. Um, you know, the, the groups always end up bonding and keeping in touch afterwards. Um, but I've been doing that basically twice, twice a year, most years, um, you know, in addition to the other teaching that I do. But, you know, the Foundation for Fermentation Fervor is the organization under which I do, you know, all of this various fermentation teaching. And for people who can't make it to a workshop, although I would suggest you try. Well, that, um, can I mention some other places that I'm yeah, sure, sure, going sure. In, in the near future? I'm going to uh, Spain in November. Uh, I'll be in Portland, Oregon next February. So, um, so yeah, I get around a, a fair amount. And you can check my website, wildfermentation.com, and mm -hmm. um, see you know, where, where I will be in coming times. You know, the, the only downside to the popularity of fermentation and the great demand for fermentation revivalists um, is that my life has gotten really busy. <laughs> well, you say, yes, you're very busy, but you're really having an impact. And boy, it doesn't really get much better than that when you can bring people back to such life-supporting practices. Thank you so much for, for talking with me. Well, it's my, my pleasure. Thank you for giving me this opportunity and for, um, you know, inviting me onto your podcast. Thanks to Sandor Katz. And thank you for listening. You can leave comments on our website, Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on podcast. You can subscribe to the Big Chew podcast on iTunes. And you can help us out a lot by reviewing the Big Chew on iTunes. The Big Chew podcast comes out every two weeks on the full moon and the new moon. So stay tuned. Bye for now.